0: Last week we talked about change coming to the church. So we looked at the book of Acts, starting in chapter 10, verse 1. We began the story of the ministry of the Apostle Peter and the conversion of Cornelius. We will finish that story this morning. By the end of this section, in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, the author of Acts, Luke, will have, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded the story of Cornelius' vision multiple times. So too, he will repeat the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus three times in the book of Acts. God wants us to see how pivotal, how pivotal these events are in the advance of the gospel and God's story of redemption. To understand the early church, we must understand the conversions of these two men, of Saul and cornelius given the number of times these stories are repeated which in ancient literature indicates how important they are i think it's reasonable to suggest that between the events on the day of pentecost in acts chapter 2 and the return of our lord jesus christ to earth a second time the conversion of these two men are the key redemptive moments in the history of the church Without these two conversions, the church would look very different than it does today. The events around Cornelius formed the third wave of the redemptive purposes of God in Christ. The gospel had come to the Jews in Jerusalem in the region of Judea on the day of Pentecost with the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter 2. The gospel had broken through to the mixed race Jewish and Gentile Samaritans with the ministry of Philip in the presence of Peter in Acts chapter 8. Now, in Caesarea, in Caesarea with Cornelius, the power of the gospel will break down the wall of separation between Jew and non-Jew, between Jew and Gentile, and there will be no stopping the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Last Sunday, we looked at the first half of Acts chapter 10. "...in which a Roman soldier, the centurion Cornelius, who is a non-Jew, most commonly in the Bible called a Gentile, receives a vision from God and is told that he should send for Peter, who is 30 miles away to the south in the town of Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner. Simon is a Jew, and he works as a Tanner, one who makes his living by working with the hides of dead animals." And since dead animals are unclean according to Jewish law, Simon, the person Peter is staying with, is considered unclean by most Jews of his day. Yet here is Peter staying with this man. Peter as a Jew who has believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. Yet Peter does not yet clearly at the start of Acts 10 see what the cross of christ means for his jewish religious works and in particular in acts chapter 10 what it means for his following the dietary laws regarding clean and unclean food peter does not yet see what it means that christ has fulfilled the old testament law and the promises of god and what it means regarding the gentiles What is clear is that God is about to grow Peter and the church in a powerful and profound way. And with Simon the Tanner, God's giving us a hint about what's coming. And God is preparing Peter for what he is about to teach him. So Cornelius orders three of his men to head to Joppa and bring Peter back with them to the city of Caesarea. The city named after Caesar himself. The city that's the headquarters of the occupying occupying Roman government in the promised land of Israel. Peter also received a vision from God just before the men sent by Cornelius arrived in Joppa. Peter's vision of the sheep coming down from heaven with the animals on it, both clean and unclean, and God's command to Peter to rise, kill, and eat combined with god's declaration that he has made all these animals clean is initially resisted by peter but even though he is still perplexed peter obeys god and agrees to go to caesarea and with the gentiles sent by cornelius and now we pick up the story and read of their journey up to caesarea and of the things that happened in the house of cornelius with peter It was here where Peter was to tell Cornelius the message from God. Beginning now with chapter 10, verse 23, we see Peter and the men sent from Cornelius in Joppa. Verse 23. So he, Peter, invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Not only do we have Peter staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, Now he invites the three Gentiles, the three Gentile Roman soldiers sent from Cornelius to stay with him at Simon's house. God is pushing Peter out of his comfort zone as he grows Peter and his understanding of the gospel and what its implications are for the relationships between Gentiles and Jews. And we know from a little later in the story that six Jewish brothers who were from Joppa and had become Christians went with Peter to Caesarea. They will be important witnesses just a little bit later in the story. So we have a total of ten men on the journey to Caesarea. Look at verse 24. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. You can tell this is an important event in Cornelius' mind. He's gathered his relatives and friends to hear what Peter has to say. Notice that Peter won't accept his worship. He won't accept someone bowing before him. Peter very clearly says to him, I am a man. Just like you. This is very different from Jesus. When people fell down and worshipped Christ, He did not rebuke them or tell them to stop. Rather, He accepted their worship. That was appropriate. For Jesus is God Himself. He is the unique Son of God. But that's not appropriate for Peter. And he knows it. We only worship God and not men. And there is only one mediator between God and men. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He alone is our high priest, and we don't need another. And neither will Cornelius, as we shall see and as Peter shall tell him. Verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? What does Peter mean when he says it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with a Gentile? Well, this is not forbidden in the law of Moses. When Peter says this, he's referring to a tradition of the Jews, to Jewish customs. You see, Gentiles were always eating food that was unclean by Jewish standards. So to be safe, Jewish leaders and teachers built a sort of holy fence around the law of God, around the Gentiles. I mean, if they ate unclean food, they must be unclean as well. And we Jews better stay as far as possible away from their food and away from them. The result was that the Jewish people did not normally eat with the Gentiles. And this came to be something of a matter of pride for the Jewish people as they didn't associate with those sinners. That's what Peter's talking about here. Now it was true under the law of Moses that certain things were unclean and certain things were clean. And Peter is, of course, in his vision, told that now as a result of the saving work of Christ, God has cleansed many of those things that were unclean before. Peter must have felt pretty uncomfortable. How many times in his life had he been a minority in a room full of Gentiles in a social setting? In a setting in any setting, really, for that matter. Cornelius had warmly welcomed him. But you can sense the tension in Peter here. This is the first thing he addresses with them because they too are likely wondering why this Jewish man is coming into their midst in violation of the Jewish customs of the day. This was definitely not normal. To make it even more dicey for Peter, isn't it interesting when you look at the end of verse 29 that we're this far into the story, Peter's traveled for two days to get here and he still doesn't know why He's here with Cornelius and all these Gentiles. He essentially asks, What do you want from me? Why am I here? That brings us to verse 30. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius relays his story and then tells Peter what he is here for to tell all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Well, what has he been commanded by the Lord? Just two days before, 30 miles down the road, and recorded by Luke just a few verses earlier in Acts 10, verse 13, he was commanded by God to rise, kill, and eat unclean animals. God was referring to the animals in his vision. Echoing the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 7, verse 19, where Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus said nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile a man. But it is what comes out of a person, out of his heart that defiles him. It is what comes out of a man that reveals his true nature, that man is a sinner. Despite Peter's resistance... Despite Peter saying, I won't do it, I can't do it, the Lord was persistent with him and told him in Acts 10.15, what God has made clean, do not call common. Three times God went over this with Peter. The Lord is pounding this into Peter's head, driving it into his heart, that the food that was unclean or sinful according to Jewish law, the food that the Gentiles ate, was now clean since the coming of Christ and the new covenant in Christ's blood. Now the command of the Lord in His vision and the sovereignly arranged circumstances God has put Peter in cements these truths in his mind. Remember, it's a short trip from all food is clean to all Gentile food is clean to all Gentiles are clean. Peter is staring at the obvious conclusion. The Gentiles have chased him down and brought him up to Caesarea. And now they are standing in front of him. And when reminded of God's command recently delivered, Peter sees the plan and purpose of God in the gospel more clearly. God has been moving Peter along to understand now, to proclaim now the truth about clean food and now about clean Gentiles. So when the door of the gospel swings wide open at Cornelius' invitation, Peter moves from the command of God to him regarding food and the Gentiles to the command of God to the Gentiles in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law of God is fulfilled by Christ. And now Peter tells them what God requires in one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in all of the book of Acts. Look with me at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. And made Him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. The message Peter preaches is the same message he preached to the Jews in Jerusalem. As he said in verse 36, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And the way of salvation is exactly the same for Jews and Gentiles. Peter highlights the work of Christ in five points. First, Peter begins his sermon by stating right up front to these Gentiles that in the Gospel, God plays no favorites. God is not partial in Christ to Jews or Gentiles, to rich or poor, to black or white, to Israelite or Ethiopian, to American, to Russian, to Muslim or Hindu. He is Lord of all. God shows no partiality towards anyone in Christ. The gospel is available equally to all people, nations, races, social and economic groups. It doesn't matter who you are. This is what John 3.16 means when it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The focus of the Gospel, the focus on people believing in Jesus, is not just focus on the Jews. It is broader than that. It is the world. God in love brings the Gospel to every people group in Christ. There are no distinctions. The immediate context here is Jew and Gentile, but the application is universal. Second... Beginning with the ministry of John the Baptist, Peter Peter speaks of the life and ministry of our Lord. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He did good and healed those oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter said that he and others present were witnesses of these things. They had knowledge of what happened regarding Jesus' life and death. Third, Peter talks of Jesus' death. Jesus had been put to death by hanging him on a tree, Peter says in verse 39. This is a deliberate reference to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. A reference Peter has made once before in Acts. It points to the fact that Jesus' death was not just one more execution, but rather it was a cursed death. In Jesus' death on a tree... On a cross, by crucifixion, the wrath of God was poured out on him. The punishment for sin that we deserve to pay was laid on Jesus. Peter reflects on this in his first letter. In chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says, He, that is Jesus, bore our sins on his body on the tree. Peter is making clear for these Gentiles Jesus' life was unique, a one and only kind of life, a righteous life. And so his death was unique as well, paying for us the penalty we deserved to pay. Christ died for our sins. Fourth, Peter emphasizes his resurrection in verse 40, where he says, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. What an important point this is. It authenticates all that he said and did. He claims to have been the Son of God. By his resurrection from the dead, he is shown to be so. And he showed himself to believers. Not to all the people, Peter says, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. It's natural that he should appear to believers. Since unbelievers would not admit it or believe it. Jesus said as much in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The last line of the parable says, If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And our Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and he was shown to be alive. This is one of the characteristic claims of Christianity. Christ is risen. He is alive. The fact is that time has not faded, that faded the vividness of Christ in the hearts of his people. We still sing his praises. He is still the living Savior present in countless lives. Think about it. No Muslim ever sings, Mohammed, lover of my soul. Nor does any Jew say of Moses, their teacher, I need thee every hour. Those are things only said of the living Savior. The majesty of Jesus is not one of doctrine, even though He was a great teacher. It is not one of organization, even though He has built His church. The magnificence of Jesus is His direct influence over every believer. Christ has brought and is bringing God near to individual men and women through His presence. We call it our union with Christ. Through the power of the indwelling Spirit, we are united with Him. Jesus has made and is making the divine personal for each of us and millions upon millions of believers in Him. He is in us. He dwells with us. He is alive. He is risen. He voluntarily in love died a cursed death on the cross. But God raised Him on the third day. Which brings us to the fifth and final point of Peter's message to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, which is Jesus will judge the living and the dead. As so often in Scripture, when the talk turns to salvation through faith in Christ, it is often paired up or accompanied by talk of the judgment to come before Christ. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the coming judgment, they go together. This covers the ministry of Jesus from His incarnation to His glorious return. He is the only Savior for sinners. And that carries a responsibility with it for humankind. You cannot decide to take Jesus or leave Him. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Jesus' work of salvation demands a decision. That's why Peter's next words point to the response that is required of the Gentiles. Verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now the response to Peter's message comes sooner than he expected and comes in an unexpected way. God stops Peter's sermon right at this point and responds by powerfully pouring out the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles and leaving no doubt about the nature of their faith. It is from God. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The Holy Spirit here effectively ends Peter's sermon even though it's clear that he's not done. There is no indication here that Peter was expecting anything of the sort. There are great similarities between this event and the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Gentiles are speaking in tongues and extolling God. I can't resist noting here that we know they were speaking in known tongues or to say it another way, known languages for they had not, that they had not spoken before because their listeners knew that they were extolling God. They were praising God. The very words used fell on in verse 44 and poured out in verse 45 exactly mirror the earlier work of the Spirit in bringing Samaritans to Christ in chapter 8 and the words used in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. Even the six Jewish believers who came with Peter from Joppa were amazed just like the Jews in Jerusalem were amazed in chapter 2. What God and His purpose and plan is doing here through Peter and Luke is charting for us and for His church the foundational and unrepeatable progress of the gospel from Jews to Samaritans to Gentiles. This is a one-time event. The expansion of the gospel happened just as Jesus said it would in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember His words. You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The presence of the apostle Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem in Acts 2 and in Samaria in Acts 8 and now in Caesarea here with the Gentiles confirms that the path the gospel will travel has been laid and the world will never be the same again. There are some very important words from Peter here in verses 47 and 48 that I want to look at for a minute. Notice what Peter does not ask these Gentiles to do. He does not ask them to be circumcised. Instead, he tells them to be baptized with water. If Peter was still at this point hanging on to the false notion that you had to follow the Jewish laws in order to be a Christian, circumcision would have been required. But it is not. It's clear from the sermon Peter just delivered that these words regarding baptism, that Peter gets it. He really gets it. Peter understands the gospel is for Gentiles and they don't have to go through Judaism to get to the cross. Becoming a Christian does not entail keeping the food laws, circumcision, temple sacrifices, or a priesthood. There are no laws we can keep no religious ceremony we can go through, no sacrifice we can offer at the altar that will pay for our own sin. Rather, God must free us from our slavery to it. Peter understands that now in a new way. That God's grace to people is not determined by any external criteria. Not by appearances, not by race, not by nationality, not by class. Jesus is truly Lord of all as Peter said. And I also want you to notice very carefully that the words they have received in the Holy Spirit in verse 47 happens before water baptism has taken place in verse 48. That indicates very decisively and convincingly that water baptism is not essential to salvation and does not save us. But we shouldn't think that water baptism is not important, as the next sentence states. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So don't get the idea that baptism is not very important since it doesn't save you or forgive sins. I can understand one reason why someone might say that. I have personal experience with this. If you grew up or been part of a church where baptism is said to be necessary for salvation, when you discover, when God reveals to you that that's not true, well, that tends to make us think that since we've been so misled, then baptism must not be so important. But the fact that people have misused baptism should not cause us to ignore it. Notice Peter commanded them to be baptized. He didn't say, it's up to the leading of the Spirit. Just get baptized when you want to. No, that's not it at all. You see, the Holy Spirit always leads in accordance with the Word of God. And when it's written plainly in the Word of God, you can be sure that it's the leading of the Holy Spirit. And if a person has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't have the freedom to say, I'll wait until the Spirit convinces me to be baptized because it's a command of Scripture. To refuse to be baptized is rebellion. Don't put yourself in that place. The Scriptures say be baptized not as a way of salvation or to forgive sin, but the Word says to be baptized as a public testimony of your faith, as an act of identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. The Apostle Peter, speaking with the authority of God, commanded them to be baptized. His command applies to us as well. Now the controversy over Gentiles in the church may have been settled as far as Peter is concerned, but there's trouble brewing up the road in Jerusalem. Look at chapter 11 of Acts, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Well, not everyone is excited about what they hear from Caesarea. The news about Peter's ministry with Cornelius and his family and friends have outrun Peter, and there are already enemies to the spread of the gospel for the Gentiles in Jerusalem. Notice what the, quote, circumcision party in the Jerusalem church, the stronghold of Jewish tradition and practice, were concerned with. They're not concerned with how the Gentiles responded to the gospel. They're not concerned with what Peter learned on his journey, or the healing of the lame man in Lydda, or the raising of Tabitha from the dead in Joppa. No, they are concerned that he went to uncircumcised men and he ate with them. That's first and foremost on their mind. They are troubled by the fact that Peter was with Gentiles and that he ate food with them. They are insinuating that Peter was wrong to have administered baptism to uncircumcised persons and to have eaten unclean food with them and visited them in their unclean home. The question they are raising boils down to this. May Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians enjoy fellowship without following the ceremonial requirements of the Jewish law. It raises the question of whether circumcision and following the Mosaic law are not only required for Christian fellowship, but whether it is required for salvation itself. Peter answers them by detailing for them what God has done in the presence of himself and his witnesses, starting in verse 4. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.'" But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. Peter walks through these events and makes it clear he believed the same thing as those questioning him before these events happened. Just as God had lessons to teach Peter through this vision and his dealings with Cornelius, so those challenging Peter stand to learn from those same lessons. He continues in verse 11. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, or in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Notice some important things in Peter's accounts of these events that are different or add something from his earlier details of the account. Notice Peter never once mentions Cornelius' name. He's not slighting Cornelius, but he's drawing attention away from the personalities involved and focusing on the larger lessons at stake. Second, in verse 12, it is the Spirit of God that ordered Peter to make no distinction between these Gentiles and the Jews. And third, as I've already mentioned, in verse 12, we are told six brothers accompanied Peter from Joppa to Caesarea. This provides Peter with more Jewish believers in Christ who have witnessed what happened. And then fourth, the church in Jerusalem responds to Peter's account in two ways. First, they fell silent. No one objected or argued with Peter's conclusions. And second, they glorified God. They praised Him for His mercy. For it was clear that the gospel of Christ had come to the Gentiles in precisely the same way as it came to them as Jews. How unlikely is the statement of these Jewish believers in Jerusalem at the end of verse 18? I would suggest that never before has a group of Jews made a statement like this. Then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. A bridge has been crossed. The church is not going to be a Gentile church and a Jewish church. It is going to be the church. Peter stands firm for the gospel here. He now knows we are all sinners before God, Gentile and Jew, and our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before Him. Even the good good deeds we do cannot atone for the sins we have committed against God. The lesson for us is we do not have a tit-for-tat kind of God. We cannot barter with a holy God for our eternal soul. Our good deeds do not outweigh our bads. My good deeds will not balance out in the end. We are lost trying to chase righteousness that way. It is a treadmill that never ends. Peter had seen Jesus on the hillside in Galilee say, we must be holy as God is holy. And he knows he can't do that. He knows he can't be holy. We are rebellion factories, you might say. Manufacturing sin before a holy God. And God in his holiness cannot tolerate sin. It must be judged. He is a just God. His wrath must be poured out on it. That's why we need a perfect substitute. A holy representative. A just high priest to pay the penalty for you and for me, to endure the wrath of God in my place and provide for me the righteousness I cannot obtain on my own. That substitute, that representative, that high priest is Jesus Christ. In love, God the Father sent Him to save His people from their sins. By grace through faith in Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied. And the mercy of God shines forth on those who Peter proclaimed this to many Gentiles in Cornelius' house. And from there the gospel spread to Gentiles all over the earth. This is a gospel for the world. A second lesson for us is that while we are not much faced with the Gentile and Jewish difficulties in our own world, there is no doubt that there are racial and cultural and political barriers that divide people here in our culture. And these divisions spill over into our churches. There's a reason Sunday morning is still the most racially segregated time of the week in America. But these divisions of the world have no place in separating God's people in His church from one another. The way God accepts us as sinners should shape the way we interact and have fellowship with one another. Paul wrote to the Romans near the end of his letter and he said, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The leadership of the apostles in the church in Jerusalem and in Samaria and Caesarea helped to ground the church in Jerusalem in these things. And so too, The elders of Omaha Bible Church have a responsibility to shepherd God's flock here accordingly. To teach the truths of the Word of God. And all this is to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, His truly the Lord of all. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank You when we give You praise for the Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You that those great promises made to Abraham to bless all the nations in Christ have gone out to the entire world. And we thank You for including us in Your work here on this earth. We thank You for the freedom that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. For the fact that we have been received by Him as a member of His body, of His church, On the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we pray that you would grow us spiritually as your people. So that in every way, we will bring glory and honor to your name. We pray your spirit would draw those who have not yet come to Christ, who are here today. We give you thanks for the whole body of Christ around the world. And Lord, we rejoice in whatever in wherever the gospel is being proclaimed faithfully, even to the very ends of the earth on this Lord's day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.